But most importantly, you have to understand the levels of language acquisition. If you do not learn the levels of language acquisition, you honestly can never help those kids. If you're not looking at the results of that read a test or whatever assessment that your district is using and looking at it to see where they are, you honestly, you will never help them because you're going to teach one way for all kids. And there are five levels of language acquisition. So a kid who is, for example, in the, in the lowest stage, right? They're, they're the, that's the silent stage, the pre-production stage. They're not going to talk at all. And those are the kids, believe it or not, who a lot of times get referred to child study team because teachers think, oh, they're not talking. They have to, they don't understand or they have to have some kind of learning disability. So if you don't understand where the kids are, you can't design lessons according to where they are. And I'm going to give an example. One at a time when I was a VP, where we were a VP together, I go into this classroom and the teacher proudly came up to me and said, I took this kids who spoke Spanish and I put them in the back of the room. And I said, why would you do that? She said, well, because, um, you know, they're not paying attention or they're not understanding. So she puts them into the back of the room and she separates them, okay? She just pulled, number one, she put them in the back room, which is the worst thing to do. Number two, she took away their supports. One of the biggest things you can do for ELs is to be able to have some type of supports, whether it's peer support, whether it's a Spanish dictionary, whether you have the vocabulary words in English and Spanish, whatever those things are. But she pulled them away using visuals, so those kids now, they're definitely done because they have no one to explain to them what they're doing. So teachers, all the teachers out there, find out about the levels of language acquisition, meet up with the ESL teacher, English language teacher, whatever your district calls them, and put in your classroom scaffolds for these kids to succeed. It's the Empowerment Perspective Podcast, hosted by Demiso Josie and Mr. Kareem Spence. Stay empowered. Stay empowered. All right, welcome to yet another episode of the Empowerment Perspective Podcast. I go by the name of Dr. Demiso A. Josie, and this is a special episode today, so I'm flying solo because I just wanted to have a candid one-on-one conversation uh, with my guest. Um, uh, This is somebody that I truly, truly respect in the the education uh, field. Not only that, just as a, a person, she's a, she's a great person. She's a great mother, a great educational leader. Um, I had the, the the blessings of working alongside of her for a short period of time, and the shenanigans that we dealt with in that that office. Uh, we can talk about that a little bit later. But um, when we talk about somebody that has a scientific mind and, and, and a great leader, she recently completed her doctorate. Um, and the way that I actually met her was through an interview process, which we're going to dig into a little bit as well. Um, so I would like to welcome to the show, uh, my dear friend, Dr. Darlene Dahan. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Dr. Josie. Thank you for the greeting. <laughs> now you deserve it. That, that I pretty much didn't, I probably didn't go in deep enough. Um, you know, there's some secrets I ain't going to let out on this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> keep it keep it together but um i want to start this conversation of um how did you get into education and then we're going to kind of go to how we met i'll tell the story a little bit because i do want to i asked you a very important question in that interview process and then i think for our educators out there it's important for them to 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 hear uh, and understand that question but Take us to how you got into education, because it was a different journey than your, your t- typical traditional uh, route. So how did you get into education? Well, actually, um, I started out as a chemist. I went to college. Uh, first, I wanted to be a research chemist. I wanted to find the cure to lupus because my grandmother had lupus. Um, and then I graduated with my degree. Uh, I have a, a major in chemistry and biochemistry and a minor in mathematics. So I graduated, I went on to be forensics, but I just kept having this gnawing feeling that, you know, for education, and I wanted to help kids with education, and so I would tutor and do a whole, you know, a whole lot of other things, including when I was a forensic scientist, I taught um, the first time shoplifters, offense, um, offense for kids, 
But then when I had kids, I just started seeing the disparity that is offered minority kids. Um, and I guess you can call it the cognitive dissonance that I found that the teachers had. And having a, a, a black son, I saw it even more because I have a son and a daughter. So I just, you know, was very concerned about what I was seeing in the classroom. And then I was also concerned about where I was seeing science education and math education. So I went alternate route, uh, got my certificate through alternate route. And then that's how I entered education. So we're going to break this down for those people who are not in education with the alternate route. Because I did the same thing. Our stories are re relatively similar. Well, you sound way smarter than I did. Uh, with <laughs> Way beyond my understanding, but um, it, just get into the the program of what alternate route is in New Jersey. Um, it's basically for those of you who don't go the traditional route of becoming a teacher. There is a program where you can learn to become a teacher. It's kind of like the fast track to teaching. Talk about that experience a little bit. Yeah, that was that was kind of interesting. Um, so as you know, as you already stated, with the alternate route, you you don't go through the traditional teacher education program. And then what you do is you have to be offered the job first. You offer the job first and then you have to, of course there's a fee, there's always a fee. Um, and then you take these classes so that you can get your certification, but you don't dwell as deeply as they do or we, or we tend to believe they do. That's a wholly different conversation there in the teacher education program. So once you put in, you pay the money and you put in X amount of hours, then you get your, um, your certification. And then after you finish, I think it is one year, I can't remember anymore, one or two years, then you get what's called your standard cert. But you just do, you work all day and then you go to classes at night in order to earn the credits for your certification. Gotcha. And I think you hit on a great point is that they don't dive really, really deep. No. It has me questioning, though, the, the teacher preparation programs, how necessary is it really? Like, really, are they really teaching us what teaching, the essence of teaching really is? Um, because, you know, we went and we learned balloons taxonomy, we learned all these theories and stuff. But at the end of the day, the, te the greatest teacher for me was the classroom. Yes. These kids and, and not these theories. Um, you think that uh, teachers are coming out of college that are going to the traditional route better prepared to be in the classroom or is it better for you to also experience, let's say, corporate America or something else on how to deal with people differently? What, what experiences are you, how, what's your feeling on, on the different routes on, on to education? Well, I have my sentimental teacher education programs, especially in the area of um, our most vulnerable populations. So the way the teacher education program is created is that you have your general education classes where they're supposed to be learning all this stuff about education, right? But then if you want to teach urban youth or you want to teach special ed or you want to teach English language learners, they veer you off to this track, this special track just for those classes. So the, the students, the teachers are to be teachers who graduate from the education, general education program, they don't have that training at all. And so what's happening is, and I'm going to stick with ELs because that's my doctorate, is that ELs, Spanish speaking ELs are becoming the minority majority. By 2060, between 2040 and 2060, they're going to be the minority majority. Our population of teachers don't have any training on how to teach them. Mm -hmm. So the education program has to change where those, it's no longer a special track. They need to come out. They need to make it as a part of their general education program so that they can be properly prepared on how to teach this population. So to answer your question, I don't really see what is different between you know, going the general education route, the traditional route, and do an alternate route. Mm -hmm. I still had the same job they had. I climbed up the ladder just like they climb up the ladder for those who deserve it. But to better prepare the, the, the um, upcoming teachers, we need to change the teacher education programs, and we also need to include that piece into the alternate route programs because I learned, what is it, something by fire? What was that expression? Baptism by fire. <laughs> Baptism by fire. And that's how I learned. I had my most, I learned the most from being in that classroom and making those mistakes. 
Got you. We're going to dig into the EL uh, learners um, in a minute because that, that is your focus of your dissertation. But um, and we're going to talk about the, the brain based learning because um, mm-hmm. you're a scientist and all you know how the brain works. So I'm definitely interested in, in seeing your perspective on that. But um, I kind of want to dive into it because I think the story is funny to me on how we met and how, <laughs> you know, how we, we kind of uh, grew to work together. Um, yes. At the time, I was assistant principal in, in school in South Jersey, and we were looking for another assistant principal in the middle school level. So we had to do these interview processes. And it, I guess to, to be politically correct, being that the principal didn't necessarily see eye to eye on a lot of things. Um, so when Darlene walked into <laughs> the interview and I heard some of her responses, I said, well, I'm going to use this opportunity to prove a point. Because I knew she knew the answer to the question. It wasn't fair to you, by the way. I'm, I'm no, going, it was not. It was not <laughs> Y'all being petty because I had to prove a point. <laughs> For those of you who are not familiar in education, there's something called an SGO, Student Growth Objective. And basically, to put it very simple, is that at the beginning of the school year, t- uh, students are t- given a test. It's a baseline test, whatever. And then you're supposed to see how much your students have grown. You're supposed to set a bar um, how high or, you know, how much growth that you think these students are going to make over X amount of time. And the highest number you can get on is SGOs of four in your areas, at least in, in the districts that we were um, educators in. But what I couldn't wrap my head around was these teachers were failing students, but yet getting fours on their SGOs. Mm-hmm. So I, I, it, just, it didn't make sense to me. So I had to ask the question because <laughs> I knew you knew the answer. Uh, how is it possible and I want you to answer it again, just for people that, that uh, want to know. How is it possible for somebody to get a teacher to get a four in SEO, but yet fail, I don't know, 15, 10 kids a year? How is that possible? Yes, I just want to say for the record that um, I was uh, stuck between what I should do. So I'm like, I'm saying to myself, why is this dude asking me this question? Like, this is the interview this can make or break me. But um, being the way I am, I had to answer it correctly. So um, I, just, I just always thought that when I got to know Demiso really well, I was like, why would you ask me that question? Because you know I have to answer it the right way. So the response was that the SGO wasn't rigorous enough. But I was so afraid. I was kind of afraid, like, if I answer it with the principal right there and stating that, well, the principal allowed it, So you got to stick with it because he allowed the SGO. It's not rigorous. The person got the four and the principal was there in the room. And then I'm like, then if I don't answer it, I'm going to kick myself because I didn't answer it correctly. So uh, yes, Dr. Josie put me in a very precarious spot so that you know, but I did answer it correctly. I love it though. But speaking, (laughs) I already knew that I wanted to work with you before I even asked that question. Because when I go into interviews and I hire people um, or in the hiring process, I look for the intangibles, right? I can't teach you to be passionate about kids. I can't teach you to really, you know, be passionate about your job and really, really, really want educators to do well. I can't teach you that. I can teach you how to write observations and SGOs and all that stuff. But when you find somebody that you generally can work alongside of, um, it's, it's, it's a very rare thing. So when people go into interviews, I want you to really think about, your personality and really shining that through more so than the X and O's of whatever particular job that you're in. Cause it's really about relationship buildings. We were able to develop a great relation, working relationship um, that blossomed into a, a friendship, but um, to truly have somebody on that same, uh, that, that the same passion and have that same heart is, is a huge thing. And then I think it's a testament to some of the silliness that happened in our office at two o'clock every single day. Yes, the infamous two (laughs) o'clock. So um, just from the the people that are interested in being an an administrator, an educational leader, um, explain that experience. Like, what are some of the tools that you think they will need to be successful at being an educational leader? I think one of the most important things that you need to have is to really understand why you want to be move up to that level and if it's a monetary thing then you really need to rethink rethink it because you have to be empathetic you have to be passionate you have to really care and if you don't have those things it doesn't matter what book knowledge you have you have to really want to make a difference 
and you have to have nerves of steel. You have to know which mountain you want to die on. Because when you're, as you know, when you're, especially when you're that VP, you know, vice principal or principal, you have parents coming at you, some pretty aggressively, not nice, some nice. Um, and you have to have thick skin to be able to deal with someone, some, and sometimes cursing at you, yelling at you. Um, you know, you have to be able to have that. But I think the biggest thing is you have to really care about those kids, care about their future. And I remember when I interviewed for the position I have now in the director's position of curriculum that I have now, I entered my interview stating this. And I told them, I said, regardless as to who you pick for this position, just if it's not me, make sure that that person understands that their job is to ensure that the kids have a chance and they're prepared for when they walk out the doors of this district. And that's what you have to realize. It's not short-term goals. You are preparing them for the future, whether you're an elementary VP, administrator, or middle school administrator, you are helping them develop to be successful right. um, individuals. I, I pretty much do the same thing. I look at every school year is that I have 180 days to save this kid's life. Yes. Uh, you know, that, that's a very small window of time. And then, you know, obviously I have second to, to fifth grade, so there's more time to develop that. But at the end of the day, I have 180 days to save this kid's life and to put them on a, a, a path of success. Mm -hmm. uh, without having that perspective as an educator, I can't really call you an educator. I mean, right. you, you, you know, you're just really collecting, you know, benefits and, and a salary. And, um, and I'm trying to go, I'm trying to lead to the space about your dissertation. And we're going to talk about that, that process too. But I think one of the reasons why, and I could be wrong, correct me if I'm wrong, that you went on this journey is because you wanted to be able to master the ability to help as many kids as possible. It's yes. probably where you were coming from with your, your dissertation. Speak on your dissertation. What was the topic about it? Why did you choose that particular time? You kind of hinted on it in, in, in the beginning, but dive a little bit deeper into it. Uh, well, what my dissertation topic was, I had, two, I had two interests and two concerns. One was the future of English language learners and especially Spanish speaking English language learners. And the second was um, teachers' perceptions and being able to address their perceptions and their biases. Because we all have them. Mm. Every single one of us has a bias, you know, whether you, whether it's how you look at someone, it's like, you're, like if you're at the supermarket and whether you're looking at someone from you and maybe they're paying with food stamps, think about what your response is when you saw that person paying with food stamps. If mm. you had some kind of an opinion, you have a bias, mm. right? So we have teachers coming into classrooms. Now, mind you, 70% of the population of teachers are middle class white teachers, generally with no involvement whatsoever in an urban situation. And here we have 70% of the teachers teaching our kids without really an understanding. So they're coming in with what they call cognitive dissonance. They're coming in with their bias and they're coming in with what they, if they feel they should be successful or if they're not successful. So that I can explain cognitive dissonance, it goes like this. If you have this bias and this belief and it could just be because of how you were brought up, could be the community in which you live, whatever. And you think that a certain population of students cannot do well, or, or as we're gonna put, as was recently stated in the news, that we're lazy, mm -hmm. right? Then when you see that, that person not being lazy, you actually are having conflicts. Because it's like, wait a minute, this is going against everything that I believe and everything that I've learned and everything that I was taught. This can't possibly happen. So either you're going to recognize your cognitive dissonance, okay, and then work towards saying, okay, I was wrong, or in most cases, unfortunately, you're going to push back against it and those kids lose. So let's stop there right quick because I want to, because our dissertations are similar in this this particular area right now. As a teacher, how do I establish that? Like, how do I wrestle with the fact that I have these biases? Like, what, what do I need to do other than, you know, just really recognizing, you know, that I guess I have a problem, I guess you could say. Like, what are the steps uh, that I could use as an educator to really improve in that area? I think the first thing is to be honest. You have to realize that you're feeling it. And you might not realize it right away. But it, the, really the only thing you can do is be reflective. Be reflective on your actions. 
be reflective. Are you teaching that student from that population the same as you're teaching the other students? Is your expectation for that student from that population the same as the student from your race? And if they're not the same, and it teaches self-efficacy, you have to talk about your self-efficacy as well. But it's being reflective, but being honest. And through my research, that is very difficult. And a lot of people cannot do that. They will not go against what they believe. And they have such a hard time in believing that everything they believed up until that day was wrong. It's very, very hard. So it is a reflective practice. It's definitely a difficult thing. When I tell educators when I do go speak about this particular topic is I, I always tell them to start with yourself. Yep. Reflect on, you know, how people see your culture. How do people see you and, and, and you know, the, the lifestyle that you live? And it's a little bit easier for you to at least begin the processes of, well, people might see me differently and then being able to flip it to how do I now see the world? And this is how the world sees me, but now how do I see the world? Mm -hmm. um, so starting is easier to kind of reflect on how you feel um, about, you know, when people are biased towards you or, you know, make their opinions and put you in this mm -hmm. box. And then once you recognize that that exists, now we can start reflect, reflecting on, on your own personal uh, biases and opinions um, and those things of that nature. Um, so that, you know, something that I would definitely offer um, to educators. But when we talk about the English language learner, English language learner, I can't speak to this for whatever reason, but um, how, you know, we have our population in our particular school and, and it's a struggle. Oftentimes, uh, these kids are the first ones to be referred to child study team um, and where there's, a, these are intelligent kids, but because there's a language barrier, there's you know, um, they, they're seeing that these kids are struggling in those areas. So they'll try mm -hmm. to push them into a child study team. Who, by the way, it doesn't have a magic pill to fix these kids. Right. And it's not probably the right place for them to go in the first place. But because they don't know how to, to really reach and teach these kids, um, they're, you know, they're sending them in that direction. So I, I want to, I guess, if you can offer three tips to someone that is teaching that, that, that population, like what would you say, um, they should start with in, in order to be an effective educator for those learners? First thing that they need to do, they need to make sure that they are meeting and collaborating with that ESL teacher, that ELL teacher, that bilingual teacher. You have to, you have to work with them. But most importantly, you have to understand the levels of language acquisition. If you do not learn the levels of language acquisition, you honestly can never help those kids. If you're not looking at the results of that WIDA test or whatever assessment that your district is using and looking at it to see where they are, you honestly, you will never help them because you're going to teach one way for all kids. And there are five levels of language acquisition. So a kid who is, for example, in the, in the lowest stage, right? They're, they're the, that's the silent stage, the pre-production stage. They're not going to talk at all. And those are the kids, believe it or not, who a lot of times get referred to child study team because teachers think, oh, they're not talking. They have to, they don't understand, or they have to have some kind of learning disability. So if you don't understand where the kids are, you can't design lessons according to where they are. And I'm going to give an example. And one at a time when I was a VP, where well, we were a VP together, I go into this classroom. And the teacher proudly came up to me and said, I took the kids who spoke Spanish and I put them in the back of the room. And I said, why would you do that? She said, well, because, um, you know, they're not paying attention or they're not understanding. So she puts them into the back of the room and she separates them. Okay. She just pulled, number one, she put them in the back room, which is the worst thing to do. Number two, she took away their supports. One of the biggest things you can do for ELs is to be able to have some type of supports, whether it's peer support, whether it's a Spanish dictionary, whether you have the vocabulary words in English and Spanish, whatever those things are. But she pulled them away using visuals. So those kids now, they're definitely done because they have no one to explain to them what they're doing. So teachers, all the teachers out there, find out about the levels of language acquisition 
meet up with the ESL teacher, English language teacher, whatever your district calls them, and put in your classroom scaffolds for these kids to succeed. Let's stay there for a second because I just want to, for those people who don't really are in that space but are in education, but you got to look at it from a very, very fundamental level too. That, we're speaking English right now, right? So if a student doesn't speak English, we got to think about the mental processes that that student has to go through in order to, one, hear what we're saying, translate it into Spanish, and then figure out what the problem is along that, that, that you know, that time frame, and then be able to deliver it back translate it again and deliver it back to, to the teacher in English. Um, speak to that process a little bit and, and, and you know, how can educators help along that, that process? You touched on some of those things um, a minute. Well, one of the things, um, Demiso, is that you have to understand the brain. And my, my little logo I have now, my little motto, motto I have now, I should say, is understand the brain, understand the student. And that has to happen. This has to happen in going back to our conversation. It has to happen in teacher education programs. It has to happen in professional development that schools are offering. When you understand the brain, you'll understand the process of learning. The brain can only hold five to seven bits of information in working memory. That's all it can hold. Okay? So when you take using your example, so when a kid doesn't understand English and they got to take that their language, and they have to translate it to English, and then they got to take that, and then now they got to figure out what you're saying. There's no more working memory left. It's done. They have nothing else in there with space to learn the content. And that's why these scaffolds are very important. The brain is a primitive brain, okay? It's an emotional brain. So when the brain is also feeling an undue amount of stress, it's shutting down, and nothing that the kid can control Right? So there's this little piece, I'm going to real quick, there's a little piece called the amygdala in the back of the brain, and that's your filter. It's one, there's two filters. That's one of the two filters. So what it does is if it feels stress, boredom is stress, frustration is stress, these stresses, the brain doesn't know the difference between the stress of a wild animal charging towards you and the stress of boredom or frustration in the classroom. It's going to react the same way no matter what. So if it feels an undue amount of stress, the, the amygdala is going to flip and it's going to send all impulses down to the lower brain, which is the involuntary brain. And that's when you're going to have acting out. You know, you have fight, flight, or fright, freeze, right? You're going to have acting out. You're going to have, you know, kids falling asleep and daydreaming. And these are things, believe it or not, they cannot control. Mm -hmm. The brain, the amygdala has hijacked the brain and the kid cannot control it. And that's what needs to be understood. I'd be a little bit smart because when I was out there speaking, I always talk about um, we learn, especially kids learn through emotions and feelings. Yes. And I said to them, you know, we learned the, the stove is hot. You know what I mean? You don't logically, you, you might kind of get it, but you, until you feel it, <laughs> then you'll really understand. And, and I'm kind of going to an aside here because of the way we are in the country right now. And a lot of mm -hmm. people know how to talk about race and approach race. I said one of the fundamental things you can do as a human being, and now that now I understand how the brain works a little bit, is deal with it on a level of emotion. Yes. You know what pain feels like. You know what frustration feels like, anxiety feels like. You know what that feels like. So let's have these conversations, these difficult conversations with these students on a level that everybody can understand, and that's emotions and feelings. So it kind of makes sense what you're saying in terms of how we learn and how the brain works. And I just wish more educators would tap into students. I mean, we're starting to get there with the social emotional learning piece. Right. Stuff. But I think we need to dive deeper into the feelings. And then not only that, because we talk about um, how to reach and teach hip hop uh, generations, but how to, part of that is creating an environment where they feel safe and they yes. feel something that's familiar for them to be able to open up and explore the options. Um, we're going to get into this concept of the growth mindset state uh, and the fixed mind state because I think there's also growth teaching and fixed teaching too. Yes. We'll talk about that in a second. But um, I think you hit something like, and I think a lot of educators really need to understand, like you said, how the brain works and how it works on off of emotion, and and we we're so focused on the logical part of of the brain, but emotion is such a a big piece of that. Um, so. How can, I guess, get some more tools in terms of 
you know, this brain-based approach. Um, what are, you know, who are some of the leading uh, researchers in that field? Who did you turn to like, when you started uh, this process? And, and, and I guess to offer some resources to people out there that um, are interested in. Well, my first, the first person, a book that I read was by Dr. Judy, Will, Dr. Judy Willis. And she was a child neurologist. And what she had found out was that there were an increased number of cases coming in where people are claiming that they had ADD, ADHD, attention deficit, all of these issues. But then when she would come in and test them, she didn't, they didn't have any of the signs that they had these things. So she got to the point where she was just becoming more and more curious as to what's going on. So to make a very long story short, what she did was she left her practice, went to school and became a teacher. So she became a middle and high school teacher where she can figure out what was happening and using her knowledge of neurology and the brain to figure out if she could help and elite, I guess, providing more insight into what was going on. Mm -hmm. So she was the first person that I did any, any readings on was Dr. Judy Willis. The second one is a Mr. David Sosa. I'm not sure if he's a doctor or not, but I know it's David Sosa, S-O-U-S-A. He does a lot of work on the <coughs> brain of ELs, the brains of special eds, but he does a lot of brain-based research. And then of course, Carol Dweck, which is a growth mindset, fixed mindset. But those are my three go-tos um, when I'm dealing with anything that's brain-based. Perfect. I want to touch on, you know, we're in this virtual uh, world right now in education mm -hmm. and some schools are doing this hybrid model and all this other stuff. <laughs> Um, <laughs> we can dig into that too, because I have my own, my own thoughts about it, but a huge part of, and was, I spoke on it a little bit about, you know, feeling safe in, in the environment, mm -hmm. in the classrooms. Now things are different. Yes. Now I think that what we're finding is that we're really seeing the true essence of education is about relationship building. Right, and not necessarily just the X and O. So when a kid does not show up to your Zoom session, it to me it says a lot more about your connection or lack there of connection with that student. Mm -hmm. You just don't want to be in places that they don't like and around people that they don't like. Right. So how do we foster this and how do we use this as an opportunity to sharpen our skills in, in, in terms of connecting with students? Well, the first thing I'm gonna say, which is a very big pet peeve of mine, is we need to get off of this camera on, camera off. Um, that's one of the best, the first things I'm going to tell you. Not everybody has this great home life, right? Not, not everyone has a room that they can go to, to, to study in. And so they don't want the camera on. They might not want to get people to see their home life. So these districts that are out there saying cameras on, or you're going to get a zero. I'm not showing up either. Like I'm not showing up. Okay. Give me the zero because the kids aren't going to ridicule me and make fun of me. And not only that, that's a stress. They're not learning. It's a stress. Um, another thing is that when you start, like you start any school year, you have to start the school year. And the same way you start your lessons is you start them with giving the kids a chance to talk. You know what I mean? Talk to each other, get to know each other, have those fun activities. Because ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to tell you right now, if you believe that if you spare any time for these other things is a waste of time, you're, you're very wrong. When I used to work for the DOE, one of the people that I used to work with did not believe in the power of brain breaks. So I would go to schools and do this big presentation telling them the importance of brain breaks. And what the brain break does is it gets the brain out of the involuntary state and it lets the amygdala release itself. So now information can go to the prefrontal cortex, which is where our learning and our memory come from. So if they're like, if you're not giving them the brain break, then they're staying in that stress state. So this person, after I would go to these schools and give these presentations, would go back and tell them, don't listen to her. That's foolishness. So, I was, yeah, I was pretty upset. <laughs> I was pretty angry, really. I'm like, how dare you? You know, this is my field. What are you talking about? Uh, so brain breaks are important. But that relationship building is crucial. Take that time in the beginning of the class and ask them how they're doing. Find out what their interests are or if they're doing a sport. Right now, well, you know, not all that's a little funky right now, but find something out about them. Talk about yourself and what you do. Show pictures of your family or your dogs or vacations or show them. Let the kids have an opportunity just to talk to each other. Get that out before you start your lesson. Mm. Without relationships, it's over. Yeah. 
And just to add on to that, if a student is not participating in your class and not showing up, there's a reason why. And I've yes. always said it before that the behavior is a symptom. It's not a cause. So you got it. Yes, you can yell at the person, call the parent, whatever, but it's not answering the issue. They're, therefore, next week, they're going to sign off and not show up again. Um, and it may be a case that they're ashamed of their, their, their house or their situation. It may be a case where they don't have access. And even though we're providing these hot spots, the technologies that we have is not meant for what we are using it for right now. And in terms of videos and you want all these tabs opening and your computer's crashing, like there's a whole bunch of stuff. Never mind the fact that that signal is leaving wherever you live there's probably not a tower in your town that has to go all the way to DC or New York and then back to you. There's so many layers of things that can cause uh, students for not participating that are outside of their control that we have to be mindful of as educators. Um, but you're not gonna dig to the cause of that if you don't have a relationship with these kids. You'll never ever get to the bottom of it and being able to, to help, truly help and be an asset uh, to these kids. So that relationship piece is, is a really, really big thing. I want to dive into this growth mindset because I hear it a lot versus mm -hmm. fixed mindset. And I listened to the, one of your tips and it really got me to a point where I, I always felt what you said, but I was like, I don't really know how to articulate it the way that I wanted to, to sound. And I was like, I think I found how to articulate this, this concept. So correct me if I'm wrong. Um, you believe that there is a time and place for a fixed mindset. Can you, mm -hmm break that down, because I hear all the, you need to have growth mindset, growth mindset, which is great in itself. I understand the, the value of it. Um, so I guess break down the fundamentals of what is growth mindset versus fixed mindset, and when can we do this dance of using both of them? Okay, well, fixed mindset is when you believe that there are limitations that you were born with, and you can't, you can't ever overcome that. For instance, some people might say, oh, I, I, I'm never gonna be good at math. Bam, they're not going to be good at math. They believe they were born with a brain that's not a math brain or not a science brain. So that's a fixed mindset. A growth mindset is where you don't believe that and you believe that the brain continually grows, which is actually what happens. It's called brain plasticity, okay? Brain so brain. A, neuro, a neuroplasticity is the exact word. So this neuroplasticity means the brain is continually making new neuron connections. The more you use it, believe it or not, the more neurons that are connecting and multiple pathways are forming, which is a great thing. But we're gonna talk about fixed mindset. And one of the examples that I gave is that there is a time when fixed mindset, we're gonna talk about animals first, right? There is a time in fixed mindset when it's fine, when it's good. For instance, if an animal is going in to, to, to feed, right? And he keeps running up this hill, running up this hill, trying to catch the rabbit. And each time he runs up this hill, he loses it. He loses the rabbit doesn't get it, keeps doing it, keeps doing it. The brain is gonna say, yo, dude, like, you know, <laughs> you're not being successful here. You need to realize this isn't working. You have to fix this. So this mindset does make this change because of the fact that he understands he has to eat, but this is not going to work. You keep doing the same thing over and over again and not getting any luck, you need to change. Right? So when we talk about education, this is the one that's important. This is the one that really, really hits me hard is that we're going to, I'm going to get on the video game, right? Video games, kids fail 80% of the time. 80% of the time. Thanks. Right? If it was the classroom, they would say, you know what? I don't have a video game brain, so I'm going to stop. Fixed mindset, right? But it doesn't happen in video games. In video games, they just they 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 keep they keep failing, but they keep trying. They keep failing, but they keep trying. And that's not what's happening in the classroom. So this fixed mindset of failure is working in the video game, but it's not working in the classroom. So fixed mindset can be good because fixed mindset needs to be a persistence but we're not seeing it in the classroom. There's another piece to this too, is that students have to be afforded the opportunity to continue in the classroom like they are on those uh, video games. Yes. What we have a tendency to do is, you failed, let's move on, let's move forward, right? Where the kid, the brain, it's proven that they, they have grit, they have the, the opportunity to really go after it when they want to and they yes. feel connected to it. 
but they're giving the opportunity to keep trying. Yes. And, and I that's, think, I'm sorry. And that's what I think is, I believe in gamification. Okay. I'm not saying that every classroom has to have a video game console in there. I don't even know what they're called because I don't play them. So, but if you set goals, if you set small, tangible goals for the kids to meet, knowing what the big target, the big target in, and you like, say for instance, you make it levels. So problems one to three is level one, problems four through six is level two. But if you set it up where there's a small incremental growth that they can have, then they can see themselves when they finish one level, there's a dopamine release. Mm -hmm. the, but the brain loves pleasure. So they're like, wow, I did it. Even if they have to try a few times to finish those three problems, they know that they have another opportunity. Number one, they have multiple opportunities to be successful at that level. And then they know that now they can go to the next level. So they can see themselves getting better. They can see themselves growing. But we don't do that. Just like you said, you fail. There's your, there's your grade. Next chapter, let's move on. But we can't we have to change this mindset that we have in the classroom here's also now that you said this the, the beauty of gamification to me and I'm, I'm going to reflect back to when i was playing mario brothers way back on the old nintendo thing right i think it had like 14 15 levels and i would always get to like level 14 but i could never ever beat level 14. i, I still haven't beaten the game to this day i stopped playing moved on to other things but it dawned on me that the reason why I couldn't beat level 14 is because I was still using the same skills that I learned on level one. Yep. Exactly. So when we are and these kids are failing and they're, they're, they're trying and they're failing, we have to get them to a space. We have to get them to space, understand that you're still, you're, yeah. So you have those foundational skills, but that's not going to be enough to get you to this next level. So we need to start sharpening your toolbox and adding different things to that place. But we don't get to that space a lot in education because we move on. Yes. When the golden ticket is right there for you to say, all right, let's redesign this. Let's resharpen your skills so that we can get you to level 15. Yes. And, and also a big thing that you can do, too, is allow kids to make predictions. Mm. You know, predictions is also a dopamine release. You know, so we just really have to be able to. It's, it's really difficult. So I'm not saying I don't get it. Okay, so it's really, really difficult because we have this packed curriculum, right? And then we're trying to get everything in there in packed. But that's when we have to say to ourselves, well, maybe, can I combine two content areas? Can I combine ELA with science and incorporate the two in there so the kids get it more than one way and they see it in multiple measures? You know, how can we work it so that we can deal with this packed curriculum that we have now? so that the kids have these opportunities to fail, but to also try again to be successful. So until we change that piece, it's going to be very, very difficult. But I, I truly believe within the classroom, if you have this gamification model in your classroom, you'll see more successes. Because otherwise, the kid's gonna get the first problem wrong, they're done. But in the game, they're going to keep trying. So we have to have that kind of fixation in the classroom as well. That's great point. Great point. I'm going to um, ask for a prediction from you. We are in this virtual world slash hybrid world. Okay. By the way, uh, those educators are out there, especially educational leaders. If you have the space and the opportunity to get away from this live and in-person thing at the same time, which I think is a recipe oh. for disaster, please do so create remote only teachers in your schedule where you're only dealing with that. If you can't do that, at least afford the opportunity for those remote students to have a study hall session, individual sessions, small group sessions along the, the way, because it is a different way of learning for them. But a lot of people, I will say this too, a lot of people, and I'll get back to my point in a second, a lot of people um, look at this remote thing as a negative thing. Um, there's actually kids that learn better in this mm -hmm. setting. Yes. My own daughters are a testament to that. They're fully remote. They, you know, they understand when they need to go on their own right now. I don't have to be over their shoulder all in their Zoom sessions and all this other stuff because me and their mother have created what we call non-negotiables. School is a non-negotiable. You have to go do it. So then once they got that mindset, it's, it's nothing. Yeah, they have their moments here and there. But I think that this is creating an opportunity for us to reinvent education yes sir. on so many different levels we've got to stop taking what we knew as normal 
and trying to place it into an unnormal situation <laughs> instead of creating the new, true new normal. Your kids are not going to learn the same way. Guess what? It's time for you to sharpen your toolbox as an educator to reach these kids differently. Mm -hmm. How do you see this moment changing education? Do you uh. think we're going to go back? You think we are re we're in the process of reinventing it? And then I'll jump in with my own prediction as well. My prediction, my feeling is that, my hope is that it doesn't go back, okay? but it can go back if the the powers to be allow it to go back mm -hmm. i believe that that can happen the teachers who are struggling now really really struggling they wanted the old way mm -hmm. and so when they go back into that classroom and everything if we ever go back to that other normal i think the other normal is gone mm -hmm. but they're going to try to do that and if the the powers to be allow it then we're going to digress mm -hmm. okay but what, what's also happening now which is a reflection to me, my personal feeling, which is a reflection of the classroom, is that differentiation. Teachers think differentiation is really, really hard. So they didn't do it in the classroom. Now they're being confronted with, what do I do now? Mm -hmm. I have all of these kids on this monitor. How do I handle it, right? Mm -hmm. Then we're going to have small groups. Now they have breakout rooms on Zoom and on, on, on Microsoft all, all the Teams. So it's it's what's happening in the classroom in my opinion is being magnified mm -hmm. because of this remote environment and all of those those issues are coming to the front because now you can't be sage on the stage right and we hear all this talk about screen time well screen time is because you were having all that screen time in that classroom yeah. so now you're doing the same thing and now we're talking about screen time yeah. So, my prediction is that there is going to be changes, but I'm not. But I can't honestly say I don't think it's going to go back. My fear is that it's going to go back in some way. That all this technology is going to be lost again, yeah. and that's my fear. Gotcha. I think this has exposed a lot of things, from parenting to teaching to simple relationships uh, building. I think it definitely has exposed a lot, uh, definitely on the parenting front. Like uh, you, we're really seeing what true parenting needs to be um, yes. for your children. And a lot of us, you know, parents are making excuses and, you know, th it's not the school's job to raise your children, basically, at the end of the day. The law says we have to provide an opportunity to learn. That's all we have to do. <laughs> the rest of it is really up to you. But I'm looking at the concept of remote learning in itself. I don't think that's going to go anywhere. I think a school district will be wise enough to keep at least some of that going if for those students, whether it be for medical reasons, whether it be for just because that's the type of learner that they are and really truly using that um, correctly. There's some work that still needs to be done mm -hmm. with it and that we haven't even scratched the surface in terms of what we can truly do with this remote learning if we really focused on it, um, right. that aspect of it. Um, and I think you touched on another piece is that it's going to require educators to truly do differentiated instruction if you really want to work it correctly. So there, there's opportunity for it to be education to be better on how it's delivered. Mm -hmm. The question is, are we going to take that or are we going back to the old way because that's what we know, um, which I would hate to see. But I do think there's a piece of it that at least will remain. There will be no more snow days, for example. There shouldn't be no more snow days, right? So even if you look at it as in the summertime, you know, we talk about that summer slide and all this other mm -hmm. stuff. It's a perfect opportunity to teach these kids remotely and keep, you know, certain things going. So I, I do think there is an opportunity for growth in the educational landscape. But what is hurting it is this concept that every school the standards, I guess, have to be completely the same in all these schools and it have to be, the schools have to be run the same. And, and it doesn't make sense to me because the populations are different. Right. Atlantic City should not look like Hamilton on how it's being run because it's different populations and right. Bridgeton and, this, and all these other places. So if you really, and I think it's a testament right now because you look at some of the inner city schools that went fully remote while, you know, most of your suburban schools did the hybrid stuff. So there's all you seeing inequities across the board. Right. But let's dive into it in, the, in your individual 
communities and figure out what works for that community and really trying to, to build. Yes, fundamentally, there's things that have to be the same from finances and all that stuff. I get that. But how you operate your schools should be dictated by the people that you serve. And it probably should change over time. Yes. The population is going to change. You know what I'm saying? So I do think that there's space for for some good things to have come out of it. And I try to tell my teachers, I said, look at all the tools that you have right now that you've mm-hmm. learned in the last four months. Which yeah. to me, as you if you're an educator and you're not reading, then you don't you're in the wrong profession. Like you should be constantly developing your brain and developing your strategies and listening and, and reading and different things. If you're not doing that as an educator, you might as well just retire at this point. Yeah. Um, you're really not helping these kids. But those are just some of the things that I, I kind of see um, the possibility of, which right. I'm excited about myself. I want to touch on, before we get out of here, touch on um, some of the things that are happening in this country, the role that education can and is playing in that. Um, and it's obviously a topic that is near dear my heart because I am a black male in this world. Um, and I truly believe that we are living targets out here. And I deal with my own anxieties and stresses as a black male in this society. Um, there are some schools that are willing to discuss the issues mm-hmm. that are going on. And there's a ton of them that are afraid of. Right. I'll give an example, and I'm probably going to shoot myself in the foot a little bit, but I'm not going to name the school. There's a group of students that want to there's a Black Lives Matter week that celebrated the first week in February. And there's a group of students at this particular school who want to celebrate it for the first time. The school has what they call an equity council. And what they want to do is to support these kids and give them a voice in all those things. But they want to change the name of it from Black, History, Black Lives Matter week to something else more acceptable so the community can, can accept it, which bothers me to the core. So. I think that there's, and I, I'm going to put that school kind of in, in, in between, those that don't want to deal with it at all, those that are dealing with it, and those that are kind of toying with the idea. What's your feelings on the, the, the role that education needs to play in today's climate and this pivotal moment in history right now? Kids, schools are there to teach, right? That's our goal, is to teach and is to prepare our kids to be productive citizens once they leave what I call the four walls of brick and mortar. What's happening is part of lesson. It's a life lesson. Mm. And so we need to address it so that they understand it and that, and they can be the voice for it. And if we want to act like it doesn't happen, and keep it outside of the walls of the school, then we are doing a major injustice to what I feel is our job as educators. And I feel that it needs to be addressed. I feel those fierce conversations need to occur. We need to have an understanding. Both points of view need to be discussed so that you can understand what everyone is thinking, why some people push back against it. And in, in the case you're, you're, you're mentioning, why can't we use the words Black Lives Matter? Why does it have to be changed so that it can be something, quote unquote, acceptable in society? Mm-hmm. It is what it is. But our, our job as educators is these are teachable moments and we need to teach it so that when these kids get out, they understand. So here's the curveball, though, because you uh, talked about this earlier, that 70% of the educational force is white, yes. female. Mm-hmm. So now we're relying on them to have these discussions about something that they may not truly understand themselves. So for me, and I'm going to just use that one school as an example, is given uh, a perfect time for student agency, an opportunity for students' voices to be heard. And I think, and I've said this several times on this podcast and other podcasts, is that we don't give children enough space to feel empowered and to voice their opinions about things. So there is a way for you to facilitate discussions. There's a way to, for you to um, handle these things without one, interjecting your own personal thoughts to bias. Um, and bias and letting these kids control the conversation. Right. Um, I think it's extremely important for that to happen in a safe space. But 
we need to talk about what this safe space means. Because <laughs> everyone says all the time, and I hear it all the time, this is a safe place for you, Billy, to say whatever you want. That kid has no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> you have to create the safe space. And if you're afraid to have these conversations, for a student like myself, that is not a safe space, man, because you're afraid to have these conversations with me. Yeah. I think it's, it's important for, like you said, educators to, to embrace this moment, um, to empower these students. Um, and I think the general message that's safe to say is that if you want to see change, if these students want to see change, they have to be a part of the change. Part of the process. They need to be a part of the educational process, the, the political process, the law enforcement. You've got to get into these spaces in order to make that happen. Kind of like your story, right? So you wanted, you saw an issue in education. You wanted to change it in education. You had to be in education to make that happen. Yes. Um, what we're saying now is I call it the barking dog syndrome. That everyone right now is you walk by that house that's in the dog's behind the fence and is barking at you. You're getting upset. The dog keeps barking at you until you get inside of that fence and train that dog to stop barking at you. That dog is going to continue to bark at you. Yes. So you can complain about it all you want, but until you get into those spaces um, and, and make the change, that's when real change is, is happening. So I think as educators, the message that we need to support our children with right now is, you feel passionate about something, you need to go make that happen. Right. I can create the opportunity for that to happen too. So that's just my two cents on it. And I think you brought up a really great point because before I became a teacher, I could, you think you understand teaching, right? You think you understand what it's like to teach kids, teach kids every day. Until I became a teacher, did I really get the utmost respect for them because you don't have a clue I'm gonna I put this out there to everyone until you've spent a full day in the classroom where you have to have bladder control and you're dealing with kids doing the homework and you got mom and pop yelling at you or coming in plus all of your other commitments outside of that classroom that I never thought about all the commitments, hall duty, cafeteria duty, lesson plans, grading, all of buying materials out of your own pocket. So until I actually became an educator, did I truly had now respect them? And that's something I've carried with me from becoming a teacher to my role now, the administrative role now, which I told you this too, Demiso. I promise teachers I will never forget that classroom. And I think a lot of the other administrators need to remember that as well, because sometimes we get out of the classroom and we think of 50,000 things to do. That's really crazy to force these teachers to do because we forgot. I promise to never forget, but that's true. If they want to make a difference in this time we're in, become part of the process as well as those kids. All right. Well, I'm going to switch gears a little bit and we don't have to do this if you're uncomfortable with it, but I like to have a little bit of fun. here. Do you have your cell phone handy near you? Yes, I do. All right. This is what I want you to do. I want you to go open up your contacts right now. Okay. I want you to pick a number between, let's say, 1 and 30. I'm assuming that you got more than 30 contacts in your phone. Yeah. Okay. All right. Pick a number. What's the number? Uh, 17. 17. So you're going to count down the number 17 in your contact list. I want you to give them a call. And I'm going to ask them a very simple question. Okay. About you. <laughs> and then I'll afford you that same opportunity for me as well. 17? My, but my list is alphabetical. <laughs> Let's see. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. I don't even know who he, this guy is. All right, let's do this then. Let's switch it up. Let's go to your text messages. Okay. The third person you had a conversation with. At the top of your text message. Okay, so let's do that. All right, hold on. Um, one, two, th one, two, three. Okay. You want me to call? I want you to call them. See if they answer. Okay. I'm gonna ask them a very simple question. All right, I'm gonna put it on speaker. Can you hear it? Yep. Okay.
Hey, Karen, listen, I'm doing a live podcast, not a live podcast, but I'm doing a podcast. So I had to pick the third person on my text message. And so the gentleman, Dr. Demiso Josie, is going to ask you a question for you to respond to. Are you game? Yeah. Okay, here you go. Karen Demiso. Demiso Hello, Karen. Karen. Thank you for, for entertaining us. I'm going to ask you a very simple question. If you could give me two words to describe Darlene, what two words would you use to describe Darlene? Uh, resilient and hardworking. Uh, all right. Thank you very much. I didn't think you were going to say that. I'm, I'm going to believe about 30% of that, but <laughs> no, thank you very much. This is a little game that we're playing. We're having a little podcast with her. Um, or anything else you would like to add about Miss Darlene that would be interesting? Uh, so Darlene always... Uh, she kind of keeps herself, uh, always tries to get to the next level. So she doesn't, if she, she kind of, she evolves. So if something changes, whether it be with science, education, she changes with it. So she's more stagnant. Awesome. Yeah, awesome. That's, that's nice. You have a nice friend there, darling. Thanks, Karen. <laughs> <laughs> I'll catch Thanks. up with you. All right, uh, bye. All right, I'm going to afford you the same opportunity. I'll go through my, to give me a number, I'll go through my text message. Nine. Ha. See, this is a good one. I'm glad I texted her today. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> this one might be rough because it's in California, but we'll see. Okay. And he'll give you a raw answer. No, nah, he did this. He's in a meeting. He's gonna call me. Okay. I'll pick the next one. You said nine, right? Yes. Oh, this one's easy. Oh. <laughs> you in class? Hey, Simone, how you doing? It's my daughter. <laughs> it's fixed. <laughs> it's not fixed. All right, Simi, you got to give me two words to describe your father. Okay. Um, crazy. And um, I was going to say smart, but... Um, hmm. Oh, this is hard. You don't, you don't consider me smart, number one, and then this is hard. You don't have another adjective to describe your father? Yeah. Hmm. I actually don't know. I'll go with smart. How about <laughs> No? I'll agree. I'll agree with smart. <laughs> Thank you. I'll, I appreciate it. That's interesting. So just to get back on topic, a little fun thing that I like to do there. I'm glad somebody answered. But um, you got a lot of things going on. You're doing some speaking things. And we kind of dug into a lot of the stuff um, um, that you're – I don't want to give too much away because, you know, I want you to get paid for your knowledge and stuff like that and not give people too much stuff. But talk about what you're into. How can they find you um, and, and contact you and, and things of that nature? Okay, well, I have two major projects um, going on right now. One of them I do is I create short science videos trying to turn more minorities, kids in general, but my focus is always minorities and females into science. So I have a website. One of them is neighborhood-science.com, and that's where people can go and find these really interactive short videos. And I've done them this summer with w, you know, Channel 13 in New York and the Department of Education. And then my newest thing that I've been wanting to do for a while that COVID has actually sparked that interest back for me is my brain-based series. And I have a website called brainbasedscience.com where they can learn a lot more about the brain, how it can impact them for their social emotional health. It's for educators with instruction. And as a matter of fact, today we just launched Brain Tips 2.0. So do check it out. Ooh. I got to watch that one. I didn't watch that one yet. Yeah, I um, just released it before I got on the call with you. <laughs> well, that's why I didn't watch it yet. So, 
Um, any other topics that you speak on? I know we've, we've been to various cities talking about different topics or anything. Um, anything else that you are interested in, just in case there's some schools out there that, that want to use you, um, your professional development and your brain. Well, definitely on increasing teacher self-efficacy, ELLs, of course, any and everything that has to do with ELLs and reviewing curriculum and instructional practices for English language learners and struggling students. You know, the presentations that you and I have done together, which was, you know, you're a vice principal, now what? And now I know that you have, you know, spearheaded and taken on the, the hip hop 101 for educators. But anything ELL, instructional practices, that's where my passion lies. All right, one more time where they can find your information. Um, two places. One is neighborhood-science.com for, for anything science-related and, and brain-based-science.com for my series on brain-based learning and webinars and PDs that I have conducted in regards to that, and that includes ELs and struggling learners. Right, well, Miss Dr. D Dahan, I should say. I got to make sure I say that correctly. Right. With, with <laughs> the utmost respect because you deserve it. It was definitely, I know the process. It, yes. was, not, it was not fun whatsoever. Yes. But you did it and you were probably, you're actually one of the reasons why I decided to, to embark on that journey too. So that's why we kind of did it at the same yes. time. You finished before me, but uh, we did start together. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's true. I was hoping a little bit to get it done, but um, definitely appreciate you and the work that you're doing out there. So keep that up and, um, you know, always will be supporting you any way that I possibly can. And, um, you know, the educators out there, somebody definitely you need to follow and definitely need to keep up on because um, I'm making a prediction. She's going to be the next one. She's going to be the next one in education that you need to definitely follow. And, and she has some wonderful things to say, some useful things, some effective tools on how to, to teach these, these children. Um, so make sure you're following her out there. Um, as far as the Empowerment Perspective Group, we are ramping up for season five. This is a special episode to kick off our season five, but season five is gonna focus specifically on student voices. So we're gonna talk to a bunch of young people and get their opinions about what's going on in the world, what's going on in their classrooms. We wanna hear from the young people. So if you got any kids that are out there um, that were, were be interested in talking to us about their experiences. Um, I know I have a couple of people coming on um, soon um, to talk specifically about social injustice from a child's perspective. Um, we have also someone coming on that has created a book club, um, a young person that's doing some wonderful things out there in Michigan. Um, I'll have my daughters on here too. They're gonna talk about their experience from remote learning. So um, just season five is gonna be focusing specifically on children and what better way to kick it off uh, with uh, other than with a great educator that teaches children. So uh, make sure you stay tuned for that. And as always, stay empowered. I'll bring Mr. Petty back at some point in time. We're we not ready for that yet, but we're going to get there. So stay empowered.